Well, how's it going, guys? My name is Adam, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I'd just like to welcome you to RCC here at RHS. Today we are starting a brand new series called March Madness. And we're going to be exploring the madness of life and how God can use that to help us to grow and mature and reach our full potential. And we can get there because God uses the madness. So let me ask you, do you think it's possible that God could use an experience in your life where it was hard, where it was pain, where you went through something, that he could use that experience to help somebody else? Do you think it's possible that God wants to use you in the very area that you've experienced the most turmoil and the most pain? Do you think it's possible that your destiny could be connected to your agony? It seems to me that the people that are the most driven, that are the most passionate, that are the most willing to do what it takes to change people's lives, they're not driven by money, they're not driven by success, they're driven by an experience that has happened in their life. And that experience is a catalyst that moves them over barriers and any obstacles that come their way. When you've gone through the mess, when you've gone through the madness, God can use that experience. Did you know that the antidote for a snake bite is made from the venom? It's weird, it's crazy, but it's true. And have you ever had a vaccine? A vaccine, they give you a little bit of the very thing that you're trying to avoid so that when it actually comes to walk through that thing, you've already had an experience with it. When someone comes from a place of failure, of hurt, of experience, they have this power, they're not easily discouraged, they're determined, and that's someone God can use. There's an empathy that's needed in ministry. And when I say empathy, I mean when you've had an experience that somebody else has had, you can see through their lens, you can see from their perspective what they're going through. Um, before I had kids, whenever I would be like at the grocery store and there'd be some kid throwing a tantrum and his mother would be yelling at him. And I used to think, wow, that's a terrible parent right there. I used to think that before I had kids. Now, after I have kids, I think to myself, what did that kid do to his poor mother? (laughs) The experience changes your perspective. I have a a 14-year-old son and there are times where I have to miss things in his life because of work. And I know that a lot of you guys can relate to that, um, especially as a, as a pastor, I work a lot of weird hours. So like every holiday, every weekend, um, there's a bunch of stuff that I miss in his life. And I know that he doesn't really understand it because he doesn't have a family of his own that he's providing for. But I know that once he has a family of his own and a job of his own, and he has to make those tough calls that he will understand at some point. When he goes through the experience He will see it from my perspective. I've noticed something about people in pain. When you're in pain and you tell somebody about your pain, a close friend or whatever, I mean, they they nod and they put their hand on your shoulder and, and try and comfort you. But unless they themselves have walked through that pain, they're not gonna know the depths to which you are suffering. They don't get it until they feel it. So when I think about how God chooses people to work for him, to serve him, to be called to ministry, it's really quite interesting who he picks. 
God likes to use people that have been through something. I used to have this mentor, and he had this saying, and he said that God uses people, some of the best leaders are the people that walk with a limp. It's true. It anchors you. When you have that experience, you have skin in the game. And I think some of you are sitting here thinking that God cannot use you because of what you've been through. But I'm here to tell you today that God can use you because of what you have been through. He uses the mess. Let me give you an example. So God picked Aaron to be the high priest of Israel. Right? Big promotion for this guy. So you can think about Moses as like the CEO. Moses would be like the president of this, this new nation, Israel, that just escaped from Egypt. And so Moses decides, I'm going to go up on the mountaintop and I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to go up and hang out with God. He says, Aaron, you're in charge till I get back. So Moses goes up on the mountaintop and while he's up there, God says to give Aaron a promotion. To make him the high priest of Israel. So this is a, a place of honor, of distinction amongst his people. If Moses was the president, then Aaron would be like the vice president. So it's a big deal. So then Moses comes down from the mountain after having a face-to-face conversation with God. His face is lit up, and he comes down, and what does he see? He sees Aaron, and he sees the entire nation of Israel stripped naked, dancing around a golden calf, which was like a false god, an idol. Can you imagine? Aaron, you had one job. You blew it. It's first day, first day on the job. God picks people that I would not pick. So my job here is the worship pastor. So I'm in charge of the music. And because I was preaching today, I asked Amy to lead the team. So if I came in this morning and Amy had the entire band stripped naked, dancing around on stage, I would not be thinking to give her a promotion. I'd be thinking, she's not going to be leading worship here anymore. And I was thinking about that. If that really happened next week, attendance would probably be terrible, or this place would be packed. One or the other would happen for sure. I'm just not sure which one. So you've got to understand, Moses was coming down the mountain with a promotion for Aaron. He was going to make Aaron the high priest. God himself has anointed Aaron. And then this is what he sees. It's like, God, you picked the wrong guy. You picked the worst possible guy. He turned the altar. He's the worst possible guy God could have picked. How could God promote somebody like that? And you know what? I had to mature a little bit in my own faith, in my Christian walk, to understand why. You see, Aaron's job as a priest was to go before God and represent his people. He had to be an intercessor for the sins of Israel. So that meant the people needed to be able to come to Aaron with their stuff, with their mess, with their sins. And so God needed a man. God needed a leader that would not be judgmental, that would not be condescending, that would not be self-righteous, who knew what his people were going through and experiencing because he himself had gone through it. So God picked somebody that was a total mess up and promoted him into that position. Because good leaders lead from a place of experience. Now, believe it or not, Aaron is actually a reflection of Jesus. In Hebrews 5, 2, it says, The high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. Our high priest, 
the one that we can come to with our sins and our weaknesses is Jesus. And he can sympathize with us, not because he sinned. Jesus never sinned. But what he did do was he became human. He was born in a barn. He knows our frailties. He knows what what we're afraid of. He knows what tempts us because he was tempted by the same things. He felt pain. He felt hunger. And so God anointed Jesus to be our high priest because he knows what we're going through. We don't have to be ashamed when we come to him. The Israelites had Aaron and we have Jesus. And Jesus isn't sitting up in some ivory tower all hoity-toity. He comes down to our level. He came down to our level because he knows what we're going through. That's how God operates. I would have fired Aaron immediately. But God knows that there are moments. There are messy moments in life on the road to our destiny. And God understands that you cannot grow without the mess. Let me read from you this verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 14.4 says, Without oxen, the stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. I like this verse a lot. What it means is that if what's important to you in your life is playing it safe, if you want a clean barn, then you cannot have any oxen. But what's important to you is a big harvest, is investing, is growing, is maturing, then it's going to get messy. That's just how it works. So I need to ask you, are you looking at your situation through the right lens? When dealing with the mess, we ha- often have the wrong perspective. We see ourselves as a mess, but God sees progress. It's a mess, but it's also progress. And if you don't see the progress in the mess, then you're going to become discouraged. You need to see it from God's perspective. So let me give you an example. Luke 22, Jesus gets a hold of Peter. Simon Peter, Simon Peter's in a mess. And this is what Jesus says. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Satan is coming for you. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to tear you apart. But wait a second. Can't sifting be a good thing? You see, wheat grows up alongside this thing called the chaff. And the chaff is totally worthless. I mean, you can't cook with it. You can't do anything with it. So in order to use the wheat, you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. And it's a messy process. But the wheat is the good part, and you discard the bad part. So is it possible that God could be using Satan? Is it possible God could be using Satan to destroy what needs to be destroyed in your life? Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. And then Jesus prays. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Wait a second, Jesus. If you're going to pray for me, why not pray that Satan doesn't sift me like wheat? Why not pray that that I be protected from Satan and that he not get his hands on me? If you're going to pray, why not pray that? Jesus, you could have stopped the mess. And I hear this a lot, like you're watching the news and there's some big catastrophe that happens and people start saying like, how could God let this happen? God must be asleep at the wheel. But anytime you try and get a full picture based on one little puzzle piece, you are going to fail. Because you cannot see the picture in the piece. But when you take that piece in the context of all the other pieces, then you begin to see, all right, this this funny little piece that, that had, to, had to experience here, all of a sudden it makes sense. 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And Jesus says, I didn't pray that the sifting wouldn't happen. I didn't pray that you wouldn't be hurt. I didn't pray you wouldn't get upset. I wouldn't pray you wouldn't be angry. I prayed that your faith may not fail. And I didn't even pray that you wouldn't fail. I prayed that your faith wouldn't fail. Because you can lose. But if you lose your faith, then you've lost. So we need to trust God when the dust is flying, when the buzzards are circling, when it's hitting the fan. You can't really have faith unless it's that type of situation. I mean, if everything's going good, you're really just going with the flow. The only time you really can have faith is in the mess. So I'm trying to get you to see that there's a value to trusting God in messy places. You're not going to ever be able to avoid bad things from happening, but you can have the right perspective when they do. I'm going to share a verse with you. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God uses the mess. God uses the madness. It's just sometimes it's hard to see because we have the wrong perspective. And we let our feelings influence our faith. But our faith needs to be stronger than our feelings. It's human to anthropomorphize things. And what I mean by that is when, there's, when we confront it with something that is not like us, that we don't understand, we tend to project our own feelings onto that thing. So let me give you an example. Um, I have two cats, and I hate them, just, just to give you a little background. But I've learned a little bit about cat behavior, having these cats. And a lot of times we think they're doing something, but from their perspective, it's not the case. So like if a cat comes and brings you a bird or like a small rodent or something and puts it on your doorstep or lays it at your feet, from a human perspective, we think, oh, they're bringing us a present. It must love me. But really, from the cat's perspective, that's what they do with their kittens when they're trying to teach them to hunt. So the cat, in its mind, thinks that you're not able to provide for yourself because it's never seen you do anything. So it is teaching you what to do. There's another example. Um, If a cat leaves its poop uncovered in the litter box, or maybe it just takes a dump on the floor or whatever the case may be, from a human perspective, you're like, well, if I did that, it would just be because I was lazy or, or whatever. So it's probably just being careless. But really, that's a territorial thing. It's showing you that it's in charge, that this is its dominant behavior, and it might even be saying that it's mad at you for not changing the litter box often enough. So um, another thing, when the cat rubs up against you, like you come home and it does like this kind of thing on your leg, so you think, oh, it's like it's trying to snuggle. It's like a nice, you know, it's a nice thing, showing it loves me. But really it's sense marking. And it's showing you, hey, you're my, you're my property. So basically, the moral of that story is whatever your cat is doing, just assume it's either trying to dominate you or it hates you. It's one of those things. (laughs) But the point is that we as humans, we tend to impose our own feelings on the things that are not like us. And it limits our understanding of those things, especially when it comes to God. Oftentimes, we struggle to trust God because we struggle to trust ourselves. We struggle to accept God's forgiveness because we ourselves are unable to forgive. I mean, if somebody lies to you, if somebody hurts you or betrays you, how many times did you forgive them? I mean, if somebody let you down and you gave them a second chance, I mean, that would be a great thing. I mean, you would be somebody of of moral character. If somebody were to let you down and you were to forgive them, good for you. And the traditional rabbis in Jesus' days, the like, 
the religious people, the people that were like super holy, they would teach to forgive three times. So it's like somebody lets you down, somebody lets you down, somebody lets you down, you forgive and forgive and forgive. And then at that point, it's kind of like, well, they're probably going to keep letting you down. So, you know, three strikes are out. You can, you can say, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. And, and you'd be justified and nobody would think anything worse of you. And so that was kind of the perspective of the religious people in Jesus' day. So Peter and Jesus are having this conversation. And Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive somebody who sins against me? He says, seven times. And I can picture what's going through his mind. He's thinking, all right, the religious leaders said three times. And Jesus, and what I've seen, he always, he always seems to outdo people. He's like, I always one up and he's talking a lot about forgiveness. I'm going to say seven times. Jesus is going to think I'm awesome. I'm going to score some, some holy points right now. And this is what Jesus says to him. He responds and says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And so Jesus, he's not saying forgive 490 times. He's saying forgiveness should be infinite because that's how God forgives us. But it's hard to see it that way. It's hard to accept that forgiveness because when we screw up, when we fail, when we say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, we think to ourselves, well, I would not forgive this done to me. So I'm not going to accept that forgiveness offered by God. And we feel like we can't approach God because we wouldn't forgive those things. And we're projecting our feelings onto God. But we're missing out when we do that. Limits our understanding of who he is. God's forgiveness is infinite. Our faith needs to be stronger than our feelings. We need to trust God not because we feel it, but because we have experienced it. And look, I'm not trying to downplay feelings. I mean, pain is pain. Anger is anger. Hurt is hurt. I'm not trying to minimize that. Feelings are real. But let me ask you, are you operating from a place of faith? Or are you operating from a place of feelings? Because if you're operating based on feelings, I guarantee you're going to be miserable. You can't chase happiness. If you chase happiness, you are going to be inevitably unhappy. Faith is not feeling something. Faith is knowing that God is going to work through the mess and choosing to believe in that. So how do you survive the mess? How do you have faith that is stronger than your feelings? Well, we all have those voices on our shoulders that say the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. But here's the thing. The glass is just a glass. And there's half a, half a cup of water right there. And nothing you're going to do is going to change that. But what you can choose is how to look at it. Are you looking at it like it's half empty? Or are you looking at it like it's half full? And when you see it as half full, it changes everything. There's a story in the Bible about a man on the Jericho road. And he was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And the Bible says that he fell among thieves. And they beat him and they robbed him and they left him stripped naked and half dead. And when I read that story through the perspective of the glass is half empty, it was a terrible story. But then I began to realize that if he was half dead, he was half alive. It's about having an eternal perspective instead of an earthly one. A lot of faith, it's just a matter of perspective. When I think about the woman bleeding, 
woman had a bleeding condition for years and years, and she could have said, I spent all my money fighting this disease. I've given up years of my life that I haven't been able to enjoy because of this physical ailment. She could be saying, do you know how much of my life I've lost? And if she kept wallowing in that cycle of agony, she would not have survived. She would have stayed stuck in that place of agony. But instead, she heard about this guy, Jesus. And she says, I have to be near him. If I can only touch him, if I can only touch just the hem of his garments, everything will be okay. Her physical body was unhealthy. And I know that there are some people here that know what that feels like. And there are also some of us here that struggle with being spiritually unhealthy. We all have messy moments in life. We all have moments where we choose the unhealthy path. But we can choose to reinforce that cycle of agony, or we can choose to have faith that is stronger than our feelings. So Jesus is walking through this crowd of people, and he stops and he says, whoa, 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 wait a second. Somebody just touched me. His disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? There's a whole crowd of people here. Everybody's touching you. Jesus says, no, you rubbed up against me, but you didn't touch me. Somebody here really touched me. So when you reach out for Jesus, you need to really touch him. And I think there are some of you sitting here today brushing up against Jesus that haven't yet really touched him. I think there are people here today that will go home without really getting what they need because they're satisfied not really growing in their faith. And I think some of you are in the weeds right now and you're going through it, experiencing the madness. And if you're not there yet, the madness is coming. So I'm going to pray today, just as Jesus did, that your faith will not fail you. That you can have the right perspective in the mess. And some of you have been through it already. You have the anecdote. You have the cure. But I want to ask you, are you walking out your faith? So if you'd like to pray with me, I'm going to pray that God uses the mess in our lives this week. You bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that you are a God that meets us where we're at on our level. You are our our high priest, our intercessor, and you have been through what we have been through. You've experienced what we've experienced. You've been tempted by what we've been tempted by, afraid of what we've been afraid by. You felt pain and hunger, and you know us. Lord, I just, I love you, and I just thank you so much that you can use the mess and all the stuff that's going on in our lives for good for your kingdom, for us. Lord, we just love you and we, we praise your holy name. Amen. So at this point,